Look, we've been in a pandemic for over a year, but I'm going to ask you to mind the recesses of your memory for a second. Picture. Good morning and happy You're Sabbath, sitting in a church family. pew. Someone is in the pulpit so talking about offering. You know how they we pray, a song starts, and several ushers walk down the aisles and pass a plate. And people put money in the plate, loose dollars and coins. And some people take the envelope from the back of the pew, a tithe envelope, write some stuff on it, and put it in the plate. Passing offering plates might be a thing of the past after COVID. Yeah, but just picture it. Picture putting one crisp, clean dollar into a tithe envelope, and then into the plate. And the plate gets passed to the next person. And you watch that dollar as it travels down the pew and gets handed to the usher. And that dollar, it just disappears. You never see that dollar again. How do you know what that dollar is being used for? How do you know that there isn't somebody just pocketing it on the other side of the door? How do you know that dollar's life will be meaningful and bring goodness to the world and be beneficial to your local community? In episode three, we talked about church structure and we spoke with Pastor Bonita Shields, former vice president for ministries at the North American Division. She told us this story about talking with a young Adventist about tithe and something called stewardship. And of course, a lot of people think stewardship is just money, which that's another conversation that's bigger than that. Sure. But in that context, that person, that young adult came back to me and said, why would I want to give to the church when it just goes into a big black hole? A black hole. That is how it feels sometimes, right? I'm Nina Velato. And I'm Caleb Isley. This is How the Church Works, a deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care. In today's episode, we're talking about money in the church, where it comes from and where it all goes. Uh, what is tithe? There's a pretty clear imperative, and it's not just the obvious Malachi 3 verses that we use relative to robbing God and that kind of conversation. That's important. But there's many references in Scripture that talk about tithing, and I believe it's an imperative in terms of a definition from God to us as his followers to return to him. Randy Robinson is the treasurer for the North American Division, and he really tried to break things down for us from his perspective, not only as a lifelong Adventist, but now where he works as the chief financial officer of the North American Division. 10% of our increase. It's not a suggestion, in my opinion. It is a mandate by God to his followers to return. Some of you may bristle at this idea of giving your money to the church and it being a mandate from God. And we get it. In our society, we see non-denominational megachurch pastors buying private jets and million-dollar mansions with tithe dollars. But that type of 
giving isn't really what the Adventist church expects or wants. And Adventists would argue it's not what's biblical. Tithe isn't for private jets or million-dollar mansions. It's for the ministry of the church. Now, we have a church organization that has had to uh, define what that means in the terms of our structure. And we take some basic understandings from Scripture, such as Scripture is pretty clear about the tithe supporting the ministry of the church. And if you go back into the Old Testament, it talks about the sanctuary and how the tithes supported the functionality of the sanctuary. We've adapted that base model, taken things from Spirit of Prophecy, Ellen White, and formed a financial process relating to tithe that works in the organization. And one of the cool things about the tithe system in the Adventist church is that parts of your dollar really travel. We built a financial structure that when I give $1 of tithe in my local church, that $1 of tithe literally touches every aspect of the world church. And I think it's a, it's a divinely inspired methodology. I love the idea that when I, as a church member, give my tithe, it helps my local church, it helps my conference, it helps my union, it helps my division, and it helps that church in India and Africa and Europe and helps them do business as well. I love that concept. Now, are there challenges and issues that we need to improve on? Of course there are. We try to manage that every day. But I love the idea that we chose to build a structure on a worldwide basis where $1 of tithe literally touches every aspect of the world church. All that sounds great. But if you're skeptical over a large church institution collecting 10% of their members' income, over 23 million members worldwide, we wouldn't blame you. If we don't ever talk, we'll, we'll never make good changes that we need to make. But I do think there are some misunderstandings about the tithe dollar. This is Gary Thurber. He's the president of the Mid-America Union, which covers several of the central states of the U.S. But growing up, I knew him as the dad of one of my best friends. So Adventist. You'll talk to one conference president. I have one that just put it on Facebook the other day. We can't survive only having 59% of ties staying in the local conference and the rest going up to support the behemoth uh, overhead, you know. And yeah, if only 59% of the money that was given at your church stayed in your local conference, that would seem pretty small. If every single conference is keeping only 59%, where is the rest of the 41% going? Your first thought might be that it goes to big, inflated administrative costs. And how would that be fair? There are some churches and conferences that are really struggling financially. Why should their donations be sent off into this big black hole? But it's not that cut and dry. Some people think that the system is trickle down, 
that all the money goes up to one big pot at the top, the GC, and then trickles down to the division, the union, the conference, and then the local church. But it's actually the opposite. It's trickle up. And as the tithe passes up to each layer of the church, the layer passes up a small percentage. And then some of that money comes back to the local conference or the local church through things like funding for educational institutions, special projects, resources, media ministries, and training. That means that the total percentage that stays in the local conference is much higher. Well, the, the truth is way more than 59% stays with the local conference. As a matter of fact, if you want to really add it up, it comes up to about 87, 88% that really stays locally. Let me say it this way, about that percent either stays there or is used on their behalf. So in a conference, we socialize all the tithe dollars. So the tithe dollars come into the conference and they're socialized, meaning that some of the larger churches, um, their tithe is bigger than what they need to have for a pastor in their church. So use some of those funds to go to areas where there's no work and somebody goes there and evangelizes or, or begins uh, to plant a church or something in that area. And they're supported that way through mission. So um, uh, the conference is organized that way so mission can go everywhere. This is really unique. If you think about a megachurch, they're able to get so big because they keep all their tithe in one place. And while there isn't necessarily anything inherently wrong with large churches, having a socialized tithe system ensures that places with fewer resources aren't abandoned. The focus is more on the overall global work rather than hoarding up resources at one local church or conference. And it prioritizes people over pomp and prestige. That doesn't mean that all churches are exactly the same, though. There are larger churches and smaller churches. And that's partially based on how much tithe comes in from the church. And that's why there are some churches with a part-time pastor who is part of a church district and other churches with two, three, or four pastors. But there are so many churches that would not be able to hire a pastor on their own without paying that pastor less than a desirable wage. And they're just as important in their territory as the large churches are. Although our tithe system might not feel streamlined because it's so complex, it does streamline money and resources without sacrificing people. The conference, the way we are currently structured, is the employer of everyone. The tithe comes into the conference office, and in turn, they employ all the people that work in the conference. And that is everybody, people that uh, work at the summer camp, people that teach school, people that pastor, people that work in the conference office, even local hires, a church that hires a janitor, their payroll is run through the conference as well. They're considered conference employees. All employees are conference employees. And therefore, you know, the conference has a, a very moral obligation to take care of the people in their employee. And, uh, and so they do that. They help matching the right pastor to the right church, the right teachers, the right schools, 
and, and look at ways in which to plant churches and to grow the work in their territory. This is why a lot of people we've talked to in this podcast talk about the Adventist Church being organized for mission. Having an administrative component is part of a large organization. Running all these employees through the conference, instead of the local church, camp, or school, streamlines resources and cuts costs so that employees are paid fairly and more money can be put into resources. Your local church doesn't have an HR department, and all the costs with that, because the conference does. And at least in the U.S., all employees of the Seventh-day Adventist Church are on the same health insurance plan, which means they can negotiate better coverage for a lower cost. There's lots of little things like that. But that's all the boring stuff. If you're part of a local church, you might see your church building needing some major repairs. And maybe a ministry project in your community that really needs funding. Or maybe your church budget is always in the red. Why can't that be paid for by tithe? Well, the local church is not funded by tithe at all. It's funded by offerings. If you've ever been at church and heard people say, today's offering is for local church budget, or even if you've seen a tithe envelope, the ones where you can actually put tithe and offerings into, there's a line on there that says local church budget. That's because all costs associated with running a local church except for the pastor's salary and benefits, are not paid for by tithe. You might be asking, how is that fair? The local church is where ministry really happens. So to understand why tithe and local church budgets are separate, we have to do another little history lesson. Okay. We're going to meet Sister Betsy. Sister Betsy? Sister Betsy. We reorganize our church whenever, in terms financially, whenever there's a major economic depression. So in the 1850s, there was no system at all. So they start what's called systematic benevolence. This is Michael Campbell. He's an Adventist historian who teaches at Southwestern Adventist University. And we talked with him in episode five. And most church members were farmers, so it's based on the value of your land. And it's not till the latter part of the 1870s that they develop a new system called tithing, 10%. At, and that seems to be much simpler and easier. So there have really been two phases of organized money collecting and funding of ministry. Systematic benevolence from the years 1859 through 1878, and our current tithe system from 1878 to today. It's easily biblically defensible from Malachi, you know, bringing a tithe to the storehouse. So uh, the church, again, in the eight, latter part of the 1870s is going through an economic recession. They're like, you know, hey, we need to look at how to restructure the church. And this time, you know, the idea of tithing's there, but how we give our money so that, you know, it gets maximized for the mission of the church. Michael told us that the catalyst for developing a tithe system was the economic hardships that were facing Americans. And remember, at this point, the Adventists were only really in the northeastern part of the United States. Not only was the U.S. experiencing an economic depression, but Adventist ministers were running themselves into the ground. J.N. Andrews, 
whom Andrews University is named after, started ministries in his early 20s. He retired the first time in his mid-20s. Why? Because, quote, in less than five years, I was utterly prostrated. End quote. Many ministers were poor. Some of them worked jobs like farming and other types of hard labor and then traveled around preaching the Advent message on the weekends, which was exhausting. Others focused only on ministry but were paid so little that their families were close to starving. Back then, traveling ministers were paid through donations at the church they were speaking at. If nothing had been collected, or if the church was poor, that minister would not be given donations for them to purchase food and travel to the next town. Many ministers kept doing this work because even after the Great Disappointment, Adventists believed that Jesus would be coming very, very soon. They were putting all of this time and energy and money into spreading the gospel because the end date was fast approaching. Probably a bit of, I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality. And with this feeling of urgency, a lot of focus was also put on the Review and Herald publishing house. Spreading the gospel through print was efficient, and it was in the Adventist DNA. Print publications had been integral to the United States' independence from Britain and to the Millerite movement. So Adventism was no different, but it cost money to run a publishing house. Adventists believed Jesus was coming very very soon. The stakes were very high. So Adventist leaders started talking about what they could do to help fund the ministry that they had been called to do, which is how they came up with systematic benevolence, the precursor to the tithe system. But there's another component to why systematic benevolence came onto the scene. Most people, when they think about the history of our tithing system, they assume that we began to do this in the late 1850s because our Adventist ministers were poor and they were not able to really adequately support themselves and their families in the work that they were doing. And this is true to a point, but it's only half true. This is our old pal, Kevin Burton, assistant professor of church history at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary and frequent guest on the show. And so really, whenever the tithing system was started, it was for that and also to an equal degree to help care for the, the oppressed, to help care for the oppressed and the poor, the widows, orphans. All of this was absolutely vital to the beginning of our tithing system. And it emerged in 1859 and the name that it had at that point was systematic benevolence. And it was different in, in many ways from what we do now. First, for example, you didn't just give 10% of your income to the church. They had a, a complicated way to do that. It had to do with a certain amount of cents per week, plus an additional amount based on every $100 of property you owned. And there were different amounts paid by men and women. It's all very confusing. But one really interesting thing we learned from Kevin is just how much of this system, this precursor to our current tithe system, was about more than just paying the bills. It was about helping people. In June 1859, there is a conference held where they formally adopt systematic benevolence at a GC session 
uh, in Battle Creek. Now, when I say GC session, I do not mean a general conference session like we have today. Um, the GC actually had not yet been formed. That took place in 1863. But it was a general conference in the sense of a lowercase g, lowercase c, where a representative group of Adventists are coming together in Battle Creek to make a decision. And so they are going to systematize their benevolence through this and advocate for these, quote, two great objects, as they called it, you know, and that is to financially support and materially support poor individuals, seniors, the aged, widows, orphans, and then ministers, many of whom also were poor, <laughs> and then also missionaries, which were also ministers who were poor. And so during the summer of 1859, James and Ellen White undertake a new publishing initiative to support and uphold systematic benevolence. And it's issued, as James White says, quote, it's issued almost wholly with the reference to the relief of the needy and distressed, end quote. And the motto of the paper was taken from Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine: thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so that's really, really meaningful because you see how Adventists care about society. They care about uh, people and their bodies as well as their souls. And so at this business meeting in August 1859, which is shortly after they adopted systematic benevolence, just a month later or a couple months later, they actually appoint a committee to receive donations of money and articles of apparel. So clothing, money and clothing for the poor. And then this committee is actually, it's fascinating because this is another moment where Adventist women are, are pioneering in our church. This committee is entirely composed of women. All of those people, they appoint 48 people, 48 agents is what they call them. They had an official title, they were agents. And all of them are women, 100% of them. And so what's fascinating is that our tithing system, it was called systematic benevolence. Oftentimes you just see it abbreviated as SB, but colloquially, Adventists started calling it Sister Betsy. After the Civil War started, there weren't enough resources to keep this paper going. But the Sister Betsy system was still in place and functioned until it was replaced by the tithe system in 1878. But nevertheless, and this does need more research, this idea of these twin principles of systematic benevolence and female leadership in this tithing system that doesn't die with the paper, Adventists continued to promote that throughout the 19th century. And we need to do more work to understand how that worked practically, but also to understand how we can be inspired by this today and what we can learn as we continue to move forward in our mission. By 1862, due to systematic benevolence, state conferences had taken on a larger role in ensuring their pastors were paid fairly. This was one of the reasons the Adventist Church officially organized. Churches and conferences who did not join the systematic benevolence system, often struggled to make ends meet, support their ministers, and were overcome by fighting. Probably because everyone wanted a piece of the pie, and there just wasn't enough to go around. Systematic benevolence relieved some of that pressure. Through systematic benevolence, Adventists were encouraged to focus on the larger work, instead of just on their local context. Since the pastors were compensated through a more centralized system, that meant that the local giving could focus more on local projects. 
and the needs of the church. No worries about making sure the pastor was going to eat tonight. Still, Sister Betsy was a bit cumbersome and confusing. In 1878, the Adventist Church did a thorough scriptural study on tithe and came to the conclusion that a 10% tithe on income was not only biblical, it was less of a maze and would also increase the resources available to the church. So that's where we are today, the tithe system. Now that we know what tithe is and why it was developed, how does it actually work? Like, where does your dollar actually go? And who decides that? We talked to a lot of people for this podcast. And if you remember from episode four on beliefs, one of them was Ken Denslow, the assistant to the president of the North American division. If we can, uh, I think because of our general audience are going to be people who don't really know uh, much about the uh, church structure. So if you could break down, let's say, I put a hundred in my tithe envelope. Where does that envelope go? And how can you break down the tithe system briefly, yeah. if possible? <laughs> can you give me just a minute? Yeah. I actually, I actually have a, uh, I have a slide I think that actually does that. Be happy to, be happy to leave it with you. It takes a dollar bill and cuts it up into pieces. Oh yeah, even better. A hundred might be a little bit, but you know, a dollar we can make it work. <laughs> um, Let's see, it may take me just a minute. Because <coughs> I think just context, people think it's a trickle down, you know, it goes straight to GC and trickles down, or does it go level by level? No, I think one of the things that we can do is simplify the system. I, uh, there are a lot of people who are in agreement that uh, we've made the system too complex um, by the, all of the up and down stuff. Boy, yeah, me too. I'm about ready to cough. I'm hoping it's not the coronavirus. <laughs> that, yeah, good. Thank you. Somebody got it, but I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it may have been the coronavirus. This was late February 2020. But let's go back to Ken. My search didn't, I thought I was going to come up with it very quickly. This is nothing against Ken Denslow. He's awesome. And it happens to all of us. But this really illustrates one of the reasons why there's a lot of confusion about how tithe and the entire structure of the church works. It's hard to access the information, not because it's purposefully hidden, but because it's complex and we don't always have good resources readily available to help us understand. And unless you work with these numbers all the time, it's hard to remember or even know how much money goes to what. Ken pointed us to Randy Robinson, the treasurer. In, in our system, how we define the collection is in general, it's not in every case, but in general, the tithe is collected typically at the local church. And that pot of money, I'm talking tithe specifically now, there are other offerings and other dollars, but tithe specifically is passed on in our structure to the local conference, which is the next higher organization, if I can use that terminology. From that, from the conference point, and that's 100% of the dollars, 100% of tithe lands in the conference. 
And from that point, policy defines how the dollars flow. In episode three, Kyoshin An told us that policy protects us from erratic and authoritarian leadership. And the same goes with money. Policy is what keeps erratic spending in check, too. Most of the dollars stay at the conference because that's where most of the functionality of the church happens. Because tithe is for the ministry of the church. The local conference, that's where on the ground ministry happens through things like schools, churches, and regional ministry projects. From there, pieces of the tithe dollar go on to the union and to the division and to the general conference. And they're relatively small pieces. Yes, dollars are passed up through the organization. But a lot of those dollars actually trickle back down to help fund different areas that wouldn't otherwise be funded. So some of the smaller organizations get help. Some of the more vulnerable organizations have a stable income source. Let me give you an example. We have a fund that's funded out of tie that we call Special Assistance Fund. And that fund is really designed to give a little bit of financial boost to more vulnerable conferences. There are some conferences that struggle to make ends meet. And it's not because of money mismanagement, though that has happened before. It's because there are some geographical areas that have higher incomes and their 10% goes farther. And a conference that is doing well one year might really get hit hard the next, and vice versa. Our socialized system ensures that conferences that are struggling through no fault of their own are still able to function and do much-needed ministry in their territory. Our system is a stabilizing force. That gives us the ability, for instance, to pay our pastors pretty much the same across the North American division, whether or not if you pastor a church that's got 10 members or you pastor a church that's got 1,500 members, generally speaking, and there's some little exceptions, but generally speaking, those pastors get paid the same. So that financial flow allows us to do that effectively. Because the money used to run the church comes from the people, and theologically speaking, belongs to God, there is a great responsibility in how tithe and offerings are used. This responsibility is felt heavily by those in leadership positions. Here's Gary again. Money comes to us. We get 9% at the union, but only about 3.5-4% is used to run the actual union office. Uh, The rest of the money goes in in ways of subsidy to the college that's all of ours. Union College belongs to all the conferences. So in essence, it's the conference's money supporting the college. And we return dollars back to them for evangelism and those kinds of things. And so a good hunk of the 9% goes back. The same is true with the North American Division dollar. The money is sent to them, but then it comes back down through and usually in the form of evangelism or educational subsidies. And then, and then of course, a little over 10%, I think about 11 and a half now, even uh, of the tie dollars used to support the uh, retirement program, which is really for their field too. So when you add all the dollars up, 
a local conference has, uh, you know, between uh, 85 and 88 percent that stays or is for them in the local field. I want to make sure that if one of my employees breaks an arm and they need to get medical care, that we have done our work well enough that we know they can go to the hospital and they'll have medical coverage when they get there. You want to make sure that your employees are cared for and taken care of. And, and that means to be fiscally very responsible with the money that you have. I can tell you horror stories of conferences who have run their bank dry. I can tell you conferences where employees went to get medical care. They got to the hospital and said, we're sorry, uh, your medical coverage has been canceled. So, so all of a sudden, when you become a conference president, you, you, you're not only their pastor, but you also are responsible for their well-being and that they will be taken care of and, uh, and they're in your charge. And, and so you, you feel that weight. Randy Robinson talked earlier about the policies that determine how money is spent. But that's not the only system the church has in place to make sure funds aren't misused. Even when non-tithe money is raised for a specific purpose, that money can't just be used for something else because leadership says they want to do that. I think it's an integrity issue. When donors give money for a certain purpose, for a certain expressed purpose, when I, when I fill out my tithe envelope or, or otherwise communicate that I want this number of dollars to address this issue, I think it's a matter of integrity that the church follow those directions. And if they can't follow those directions for some reason, that literally they recontact the donor and say, we can't, we can't mm-hmm. fulfill this for you. So one of two things has to happen. Either we give you the money back or you can redefine for us how you want us to use these resources. Using resources properly is a top priority of the church. And that's why yearly audits, especially at the GC and division layers, are important and integral to the financial health and transparency of the church. We use resources properly. There are policies that define how the local church uses tithe, and really the only way the the local church uses tithe, it really is in two ways. Number one, it pay tithe direct tithe pays for its minister, absolutely. Secondly, uh, the local church may receive uh, dollars that were originally given as tithe that come back to the local church for its use for mission and ministry, such as evangelism outreach and some other things that the conference allows them access to tithe dollars for. So that's really the only thing the local church uses tithe for. The the structure of the church and the policies of the church define very specifically how tithe is used And one of the mechanisms to answer your question very specifically in terms of how we ensure that those tithe dollars get used properly are through audits. We are audited annually. And I am required not only to go through an audit successfully as as the financial officer of the organization, 
but I report interim performance and use of dollars to certain committees and, and certain groups of individuals several times a year. So the accountabilities that are in place are pretty stringent. And if I am not performing my duties as I should be, that will show up in that reporting and those audits. And I will be called to account if that doesn't happen. Even with all these policies and systems in place to ensure money is used correctly, tithe is a really controversial issue. A lot of people struggle with the large church institution asking its congregants for money and aren't sure that what the money is going to is valuable for them at the local church or that it aligns with their values. Some people still pay the biblical tithe amount, 10% of their income, but they donate to other causes outside of the church or directly to a cause within the church that they want to support. In fact, even Ellen White did that. When she noticed that Black ministers were not being given adequate resources, she actually took some of the tithe that she would have regularly paid to the church and paid it directly to them. We asked Randy Robinson about that. Great question. And, and frankly, I think some people do. But, uh, but let me address it from my perspective. The fact is the predominant writings of Mrs. White relative to tithe use wrongly urge members to return tithes through the normal channels of the church. That's overwhelming. There are a couple of situations that she cited and you referenced correctly, where she actually, as I understand it, gave some of her tithe to a, a, a more specific local purpose that she saw a great deal of need. My interpretation of that, uh, without going back to the reference and reading context and getting and deriving all of the context out of that particular situation, my, my understanding of that is Mrs. White was a part of the group of individuals who started the Seventh-day Adventist Church, literally started the church from scratch. Um, she was a part of that as a young person, probably not much older than you guys. In the early days of the church, of that just forming new, she may have found situations where before the structure could support the, the weight of the organization, there may have been holes in it that she saw fit to say, listen, we're not quite mature yet, so let me see if I can help over here to, to prop them up a little bit to make sure that they're growing with the rest of the church organization until the structure can support it. That's how I interpret that action. As I read her writings on tithe and tithing and support of the organization, the church, overwhelmingly, she says, you know, we need to make sure that we support the church in tithe the way the church has defined it, not for the organization's sake. And I don't mean it that way, because we have lots of flaws. We need to figure out how to, how to be more efficient, and we need, that needs to be a constant process but we don't want to just return money just to support the organization and to prop up the organization. Absolutely not. So this is all about mission and ministry. But the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a mature organization now, and it, and it can support the weight of the mission of the church. And so I think it can undermine 
the structure and the mission of the church if we choose to use tithes other than how the church has defined it. And Ellen White wasn't the only one to take tithe money and put it toward other things. Here's Ken Denslow again. A number of years ago, (laughs) I won't say exactly how many because you might be able to put it together where I was when I did this, but there was a program that I was a part of that I felt was underfunded, and it directly impacted my ability to do my work. And I made the decision for a brief time, since that program was funded through tithe anyway, I decided that I was going to use my own personal tithe for that project for a while. That lasted a very short time. I didn't feel good about it. It didn't fit right. Because what I found myself saying to myself was, I have put myself into deciding personally where God's tithe is best used. In my theological understanding, that money is not my money. It's God's money. And I chose to put my judgment on where tithe should go above anybody else's, above any agreements inherent in my membership in the church. And I felt, personally, I felt uncomfortable with that. I feel very differently when it comes to offerings, but for me, I have a fairly high view of tithe, and uh, so I quit. I haven't done it since. I feel best in uniting my return tithe with the practices of most Adventists. Sometimes it's not just about a lack of resources going to a certain area of the church. Sometimes we really disagree with how the money's being spent or with certain stances or practices the church takes. For example, after the general conference in session, voted against allowing divisions to choose to ordain pastors without regard to gender, which would have essentially allowed women to be ordained within specific division territories. Many Adventists decided to withhold tithe in protest. On the other hand, in unions where they have decided to ordain women anyway, members who are against ordination withheld tithe as a protest too. Well, people have told me where I go to church, and, and other places I've been, that they do that. They've told me in so many words that, you know, I feel like I'm uncomfortable with the way the organized church or my conference or my particular local church or whatever is using the resources, so I'm choosing to do it a little differently. You know, that's a, certainly a, a decision of, of conscience. They have to decide how that happens. But I am a very firm believer in following the process as outlined by the church. Randy has been a lifelong Adventist, but if you think that means he's likely to sweep things under the rug or just toe the line, you might be missing something. I've worked for the church for 37 years, give or take, in finance. I know the inner workings of the church. I've seen the underbelly of it. I've seen the good, bad, and the ugly, and I still choose happily to return my tithe to the church through the processes that it has established. For Randy, being part of the church means you're part of a family. 
And sometimes, even when you don't get along with your sibling, you still all pitch in at the family potluck, even though your sibling is invited to. I know that we are a worldwide organization. I participate in it by going to church and receiving a blessing. And as a, as a member, I'm a part of that family. And so I feel an obligation, not just because I've always done it, but an obligation because I'm a part of the family to continue to return tithe that way. And when I don't, it, to a degree, undermines the ability of the church to do business on a worldwide basis. I'm not criticizing people for making decisions on how they use tithe. Very personal. And you have to be, uh, you know, understand what the scripture says. I believe you have to do that in close relationship with Jesus. And if you come to certain conclusions in that context, I am far be it for me to criticize. But that's how I believe it. I believe to support that church in the way and the, the way the structure is identified, even knowing the, the, the good, bad, and the ugly of it, having living in it, I'm making decisions in it, I see it. I'm happy to do it because I know it supports the worldwide mission of the church. So for someone who we've talked about maybe has some distrust or some confidence issues with the organization and doesn't want to give tithe, what would you say to reassure them that local church does benefit from tithe? And how does the local church benefit from tithe? Very specifically, probably the largest part of the tithe covers people. It takes a fair amount of resource to make sure that any given church has a pastor or pastors that function in that capacity. And, and it's not just paying them a salary. There are additional benefits that we need to provide to people to help them live in an adequate fashion. We don't, you know, nobody's going to get rich on the salaries of the church. I can attest to that, having been a part of it for 37 years. Nobody's getting rich on that. But we need to pay a living, adequate wage for people to live decently. And we try to do that. And that includes medical benefits, retirement benefits, other travel requirements, housing. It's just, it's bigger than just my monthly paycheck. We have to take care of the people. That's costly. And when people decide not to give tithe because of a certain cause, it can actually hurt that cause. For example, for people who support women in ministry, the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary is subsidized by the General Conference tithe dollars. That subsidy makes it possible for people who feel called to ministry but are not yet hired by a conference to be able to afford tuition. And many of the students who put themselves through seminary are women. Ultimately, giving tithe or not giving it is a personal choice. Although some churches have taken more militant approaches to collecting tithe, with visits from the pastor and pressuring from other members, generally in the church, tithe is seen as something that needs to grow out of a personal conviction, and it's just one aspect to the idea of stewardship. Cultivating our time and resources in a way that lives out God's calling in our lives and in our church. 
One of the biggest parts of the Adventist Church Institution is education. And our educational system is largely funded by tithe dollars. When we hear criticism about tithe, it often centers around our education system. Teachers feel underpaid and under-resourced. Some former students feel that the Adventist education was oppressive and traumatic and wonder why so much money is going to fund these schools. Others feel that the rise of cost of tuition doesn't make sense if tithe money is supposed to be used to fund schools. And these are really important questions. On the next episode of How the Church Works, Adventism's complex legacy of private education, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Church Works is hosted by Nina Velato and Kayla Beisley. Thank you to our guests this week, Pastor Benita Shields, Randy Robinson, Gary Thurber, Kevin Burton, Michael Campbell, and Ken Dinslow. You can find a bonus content for this episode on our website, howthechurchworks.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Heather Moore. All episodes are edited and mixed by the multi-talented Nina Velato. Thank you to Michael Campbell for reviewing and fact-checking our episodes. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby. Website and social media by Chelsea Arnina. Thank you to Stephen Husett, our tech and equipment expert. The show is executive produced by Adam Fenner, Heather Moore, Caleb Isley, and Nina Velato. Special thank you to the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send it to hello at howthechurchworks.com. 